Hey, Kev, let's let's follow this trail over here. This looks like there might be something waiting down there. All right. Hey, wait a minute. Do you hear that? Yeah, I thought it was just me. What the heck is that? I don't know what that is. Whoa, do you smell that, too? That's unbelievable. Hey, look. What the? Hey, look, those, those branches are moving over there. What the heck is that? Holy cow, is that what I think it is? Look at that thing. It, oh my god. It's a freaking Sasquatch. Welcome to the Bigfoot Terror in the Woods Sightings and Encounters podcast. My name is W.J. Sheehan, author of the series of books, Bigfoot Terror in the Woods, Sightings and Encounters, 11 volumes, all available at Amazon, Audible, and iTunes, in paperback, ebook, and Kindle format, with the exception of volume 11, which I have just booked appointments to record. So that'll be coming down the road in a piece. And by the way, folks, KJ is on a long road trip, and I have decided today, rather than running a previously listened to podcast, that I would pop in on you guys, have a little chat, and talk a little hairy man. So if it's okay with you, that's what we're going to do today. I thought we'd do a little catching up. You know why... Just wrapped up volume 11's uh, with my book lady, Casey Smith, at sugarstudios.com. I booked four studio sessions to record the 11 Audible book. And I just finished volume 12, which I have posthumously laid in Casey's lap. (laughs) And... She'll be working on that for a while, but I have some interesting news for you. I made a decision to divide volumes 1 through 12 into regions around North America. A lot of people are interested in knowing what's going on in particular in their realm, and so I'm putting together the Pacific Northwest, the Northwest, the Southwest, the Central United States, the Northeast, the Southeast, and Canada. It's going to be seven volumes. All of the accounts in the 12 books will be consolidated at that point into regions. So, if you have a hankering for knowing what's going on in your neck of the woods or the grouping of states where you live, uh, you could certainly uh, purchase one of those volumes. I'm not certain if I'll do those in audio book because really all of the accounts are in uh, an audio format uh in the form of the individual volumes. I, I may, you guys know me if you've been around for a while, that uh, uh, no moss grows under my feet. And by the way, if you're new to this podcast, generally my brother KJ 
sits in with me, and he's my co-host. We do a segment in the beginning of the show called Cryptids in the News and Other Oddities, where we talk about a lot of strange things, including the hairy man. Then we go into some the reading of uh, generally a Bigfoot account, possibly Dogman, uh, but something of that ilk. And we typically end the show with our listener mail sent in by people like yourselves. So I encourage you to go out, uh, not that you have to go out, but to go on your computer or your phone and order a copy or two of what I put out there. A lot of work goes into this, folks, and I have spent the entire day today, my day off, working on that Pacific Northwest series to get that going. And here I am doing a podcast with you. So it's greatly appreciated and noticed by me when people are interested in what I do and support what I do. I see some books being sold and it does my heart good. So if you want to do something good and help out the old dog, WJ, Go out and make a purchase. People, you know we don't sell anything here. No cups, mugs, hats, t-shirts, nothing of the sort. Frankly, we don't have time to do that in our lives, uh, neither KJ or myself. So this is what we do, and we try to do it well. Now, I have a couple of accounts I'm going to hit with you guys today. Some interesting things. Uh, I know I'm going to do two with you, maybe three, but let me see how it goes. Okay, this first account, extremely gory. Uh, It was told to me by a fellow named Stephen Haynes, a resident of the state of Maine. And this is what Stephen had to say. It was deer season in 1978 when my brother Barry and I had ventured into the region north of Caribou, Maine, near Eagle and Square Lakes. This was an area which we had hunted many times and had scored fairly well through the years. Getting as near to the location as we could with our truck, we still had a reasonably long hike in where we where we were to begin our stalk. It was several hours later when we had scored our first buck of the season, and having butchered and bagged it, we were making our way out of the forest. At some point, I was overcome by the burden of carrying such a heavy load, and I stopped to put the pack down. I placed my hand against a tree in a leaning posture to rest. But as soon as my hand hit the tree, I felt something sticky and moist. I quickly drew my hand back, and as I looked at my palm, I knew immediately from years of hunting that my hand was smeared with viscous, sticky animal blood. My brother said to me, oh my God, what is that? I said to him, it was on the tree. At the same time, we both looked up, draped over a limb about 20 feet off the ground, was the complete body of a doe, and it was not old old at all. 
we could see that it was fully intact, with the exception being that both of its front legs were snapped off. They were two stubs, which we could plainly see from our position below. With that, Barry gets the harebrained idea that he's going to climb up and pull it down. He proceeded to do so, getting blood from the tree all over his clothes and hands. He gave the doe a shove, and she came tumbling down to the ground with a whack. Now, now standing over it, she didn't appear to be a day old, and more than likely had been placed there this very day on which we had found her. Based on the lack of resistance as we grabbed the head, it appeared the neck had been broken as well. But by what? In all of our days hunting, we had neither seen nor heard of such a thing being found in Maine. We began to examine the tree's trunk, looking for any indications of something having climbed the tree, but there was nothing. No black bear would have left a carcass untouched, and I had never heard of a black bear treeing its catch. With both front legs being broken cleanly, and with the neck being broken as well, the rest of the animal's hide was completely untouched. No claw marks, no blood stains. The carcass was in perfect condition. When we made it back to Presque Isle, we had stirred up a small commotion with our talking about our find and having left the doe in the woods. It was then that one of our cronies had said, why didn't you bring it out so we could see it? We told them we were already carrying 125 pounds of meat, but they didn't want to hear it. They became so incensed about what we had said that it was decided we would go back and get the doe. The following day, we drove back up there and hiked back in where the doe had been, but it was gone. With the discovering of the deer being gone, this kid Joey starts blowing off how we planned this all to freak everyone out. I said to him, hey, wait a minute. You asked us to come back here. I didn't even want to go, nor did I ask you to. With that, he and the others started to look around. When this guy Frank says, hey, check this out. He was pointing to and staring at was what was a large singular footprint in the soft peat. Then one of the boys said it was the footprint of a hairy man. Well, as you would imagine, that about iced the proverbial cake for all of us. Being unarmed, we exited hastily to say the least. I and the others were now believers in something that we had all heard about in passing through the years, but had never seen. With this newfound evidence of first the deer and now the footprint, we were convinced that there was something large and well able to kill wandering around up here, and it changed our lives and our thoughts on an ongoing and permanent basis. What do you make of that, my fine feathered friends? A deer with its legs snapped off, 
placed up on the branches of a tree, blood running down the trunk, dripping from above. It seems to me that these creatures are not necessarily that peaceable. It's a violent form of killing. Not that there's any nice way to kill uh, for food when you don't have a gun or a bow and arrow. But when people say that these creatures want to be our friends, all they want to do is come to your home and have some donuts and a cup of joe. Baloney! In my opinion, it could have been a person in that tree as opposed to a doe. And why it was left there is anybody's guess. Why wasn't it carried off immediately? Perhaps something happened and it had to go and knew it could come back for its kill, which evidently it did because they came back the next day and it was gone. So there was a little delay of game, if you will, between the actual killing and the retrieval of dinner. Now I'm going to jump into another account here, which is very odd indeed. This strange account was brought to my attention by Dennis Majewski, a resident of the state of Wyoming. Here's what Dennis had to say. It was during the summer months of 1982 that my brother had called me after finding one of his cattle dead in the field. My brother had made somewhat of a killing in the initial personal computer craze with some innovative software designs and was already in a way retired. He certainly wasn't doing the nine to five routine anymore. His property was more or less like a small farm but he wasn't in it to make money or in any way commercial. He enjoyed seeing and caring for the animals, with them being more or less like pets, and part of his farm being about six or eight head of cattle. He, had gotten, he hadn't gotten into any of the particulars on the phone, but when I arrived and was now standing over the dead animal still in the field, I saw that its rear leg had been torn off. There was also a singular large bite taken from the upper portion of its back, and its neck was twisted precariously backwards. He looked at me and said, what do you think? It was bizarre to say the least. With his property being fairly in the open, all things considered, and I wondered who or what had snuck up here to do such a thing and leave undetected. So I told him that I thought he should call the veterinarian and let them have a look, which he did. I stayed at his house. Several hours later, the vet came, being more than a little interested in what he had reported. As the three of us were now looking at the dead beast, she had said that it looked like some type of animal attack, but she had never seen anything quite like it. There were no claw or scratch marks on the hide, 
And the fact that the neck had been broken brought yet another strange twist, no pun intended, to the table. We were in an absolute quandary over just what had occurred in regards to this animal's demise. My brother called his neighbor, and he came over with a backhoe to dig a ditch for the animal to be buried in. It was many months later, when winter already had its grip on the state, that the phone rang, and once again, it was my brother. The date was December 17th. Answering the phone, my brother had stated that another one of his cattle was found dead in the field, and he wanted me to come right over. He sounded a bit frantic. This was unusual for him in that he possessed an extremely scientific mind in which everything had an order and a purpose, and nothing was beyond his ability to figure out or ascertain if he put his mind to it. But this was different. When I got to the house, we immediately went out into the field to where the dead animal was. And much to my surprise, the condition and positioning of this animal was almost identical to that of the one from months before. If I didn't know any better, I would have said it was the same animal, which of course it wasn't. But today was different. We had about 10 inches of snow on the ground in which there was a long line of gigantic footprints leading both to and away from the carcass, as well as those which were surrounding the dead animal. They were huge, measuring some 24 inches long and extremely wide, with misshapen human-looking toes that turned inward. There was no sense in asking the vet to come back, so the two of us began to trace the steps out across the field, heading towards some timber about a quarter of a mile away. The tracks led to and over a fence, with no damage being done to this fence whatsoever, which, by the way, was six feet tall. Having negotiated the fence ourselves, we traveled onward about another 300 yards to a place where the tracks just stopped. And it was in this very same place that we could see where the tracks coming in had started. Now, in this spot where these tracks had both abruptly started and stopped, the snow had been melted down to the very soil in what was clearly a circular pattern with the circle being perfectly, where's the other page? I lost my page. Ah, here it is. Sorry about that, folks. With the perfect, the circle being perfectly symmetrical and having a diameter of about 20 feet. 
The two of us walked for quite some distance in every direction, thinking that at some point we would pick up on some other clues, but nothing was found. The tracks were in a virtually perfect line, one foot being placed in front of the other, and had both begun and stopped at this melted circular clearing. We were dumbfounded. Both the topics of Bigfoot and aliens were discussed at length by my brother and I. But what to say or do about such an incredible thing was beyond our combined comprehension. In the months and years following, there were no further events on his land, in spite of the fact that he still had cattle and a host of other animals present on the farm. What do you make of that, folks? It's an incredible tale. Tracks to nowhere. Leaving and returning to a melted circular depression on the land. What do you know of that is circular and that could melt 10 inches of snow while the rest of the snow exists around it? And who or what type of creature or thing would walk to the clear area and away from the clear area? It doesn't make any sense. It reminds me of Sherlock Holmes, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's character when Watson was questioning him. And he said to Watson, after you have removed everything that is known to be untrue from the table, whatever is left, no matter how bizarre, must be the truth. And so if we believe this gentleman and the story he tells, what else could it be? Some type of circular UFO had come down in that area out of which came something with big feet, walked across, nailed this head of cattle, killed it for what reason we don't know, it was not taken, went back and got back into the craft. That's all you could say. What else are you going to say? Some helicopter landed there, and guys with big feet got out, killed the animal, and went back to the helicopter that swirled around its rotors. He gave an exact dimension of the diameter, about 25 feet, I think he said. Perfectly circular in design. I leave that with you because in my mind, there's only one thing it could be. Now, this last encounter... Very strange indeed. But folks, I say all the time, if you listen to this podcast, people see something because they're looking. People say something because they have a desire to contribute. And if you've seen something, you need to say something. And if you contact me, you need to answer me, call me back or answer your phone. I have a lot of people that pull a lot of shenanigans out there. They write in saying they have something to talk about, 
and I called them repeatedly and they never answered the phone or returned the call. What that's about, I don't know. But I am interested in talking to people of goodwill and good faith that have seen or found or encountered something. And I will call you and I will talk to you. And many of you know that because you have spoken to me personally. This following unusual account was told to me by Donald Kirshner, a longtime resident of the state of Tennessee. So listen to this, folks. We're going from Maine to Wyoming in the snow to Tennessee. Here is what Donald had to share. In 1979, I was in the Buffalo River, Tennessee, doing a little bow fishing for red horse, white suckers, brown bass, and smallmouth buffalo. I would say these are all varieties of fish. At that time, I had manufactured my own version of a fishing bow by rigging the lower section of a fishing pole with a Zebco reel mounted on it in a reverse fashion on my recurve bow. I had already been fishing for a couple of hours, working both the shallows and the ripples, and the stringer on my belt was now full of fish. I had already decided that after just one more fish, I was going to call it quits for the day. I already had enough for a damn good fish fry, and to be honest with you, I was tired. Well, what happened next was so strange that my telling you about it can in no way do it justice. But tell you I will, Bill. I was standing in midstream scanning the ripples and the shallows to my left-hand side. When out of the corner of my eye, I saw something big moving in the brush. Without making any sudden movements, I stood my ground, as though I had seen nothing and continued to watch out of the corner of my eye. Just moments later, I could see the head and shoulders of a booger peering over the top of a bush, and then it ducked down again. Although I had never personally seen a booger, I had heard many a tale about them. It was obviously interested in what I was doing, and more than likely in the fish hanging from my belt. Now, I must say that I wasn't really afraid, perhaps unnerved, But this booger had sparked my interest. I had put the arrow, or put an arrow, into another red horse. And as I was retrieving it, I could see the booger watching me through the bushes. I then slowly made my way back towards the bank, about 75 feet away from where I had last seen the creature, and flipped the red horse onto the bank. Now making my way back out to midstream, I began to act as though I was looking for another fish. At one point, I actually turned my back to the bank where the fish was now laying. It was about five minutes later when I saw a hand and shoulder emerge from in between some bushes, and that darn booger took the fish. 
I actually had a little smile on my face when I saw this happen, and I decided to do it again. This time around, I had tagged a sucker. Once again, I walked over near the bank, this time in the opposite direction, and again left the fish behind. After only a few minutes, the booger had snatched that fish as well. I honestly believe that it knew I was giving it, giving them to it, but it was still unwilling to fully show itself. Thankfully, I had entered the creek from the other side of where this booger was hiding and I decided to leave. As I stepped out of the water, I turned to look back, this time scanning the entire bank carefully, hoping to see the beast and yet I saw nothing. When I had first seen it, it was from the armpits up as it was peering over a bush. The shoulders had to be all of five to six feet wide and the head as well as the shoulders were covered in brown hair. The face, which was covered in a shadow, had no hair on it whatsoever and the eyes looked like two pieces of coal set deeply into the skull. Its skin was gray, very wrinkled, and the mouth had no lips, being a straight line across the face. Based on what I had just seen, it had been crouching behind these bushes that were about six feet tall. I could only imagine how tall it would be had it stood up fully. Now, listen, folks, I understand all too well how difficult it is to comprehend and accept what it is that many people are saying to me and to you, particularly when you're not present to hear the passion in their voices. Here is this innovative character out in this stream in Tennessee. I have no idea where the Buffalo River is. Maybe some of you could shed some light on that, but he must have been somewhere where he was fairly isolated. And this thing is intrigued by his ability to catch fish. Maybe it had tried to catch fish itself and came up uh, with a goose egg. I know that from an account I had in Vermont where two fellas trout fishing heard a splash, several splashes, and saw this Bigfoot in an act of futility trying to grab trout in the creek, which it couldn't. So it's obvious to me anyway that these creatures are looking for food in rivers. People have said they see them digging clams, find them in orchards picking fruit. Uh, vegetables, all kinds of things are going on out there. They are omnivores, and to me, they will take advantage of anything they can in their surroundings to survive. And it may just be you if you're not careful. Not too long ago, I did a pretty good interview with a... Uh, 
My mind is failing me right now. He was a uh, guy that search and, search and rescue guy in Washington State. Very interesting to talk to this fellow because he had formed opinions based on things that he had heard and things that had been seen and, of course, missing persons that were never found. And based on the information he gave me, which was not all his own, this was information he had found out, his personal belief was that there are people being taken by the Bigfoot creature. Uh, He also shared with me that quite a few of the people they went searching for were suicides. Uh, Some of the people were genuinely lost, not being prepared for what they were getting into, going out uh, as an amateur into the woods, not fully prepared for what the day, the weather, the terrain was going to offer. But I have no doubt in my mind that these creatures are out there and they can do you harm if you get too close to them or if they could get to jump on you like a cougar coming out of the bushes. And that's it. So just to share with you a little listener mail, Mary writes in from, of all places, Maine, as we're talking about Maine, and she says that she loves the show and she loves the banter between myself and KJ. As many have said before, the two of you remind me of Tick and Talk, the old car talk guys. I appreciate that, Mary. And Kevin and I are having a good time doing what we're doing. We enjoy it. We hope you enjoy it. And we hope you invite your friends to enjoy it. And by the way, folks, you may think I've got tens of thousands of mails to read, but I don't. Uh, We have a huge audience, but very few people actually take the time to write in just to say hello. Enjoy your show. Thanks a lot. Keep up the good work, things like that. And it means a lot to both KJ and I. But more than that, I know there are many, many people out there who have seen, encountered, found evidence of Bigfoot in their area or in some location at some point in their lives. And I encourage you to come out, stand by your guns, talk to me, let's get it out there and let's share what happened with you, with the listening audience and all the other people who read my books. One last letter. Dear W.J. and the other guy. (laughs) Kev, sorry, Kev. They're busting your chops. Uh, Love to hear Kevin talking about the vampires and all of this Transylvania mayhem. What is going on over there that all of these things are happening in such a location? Keep up the great work. Brad. Listen, Brad, I've thought about this long and hard. This whole Transylvania thing, with Kevin talking about that fake castle with windows that don't work and a 
dome, a chapel built on the inside with some type of frescoes of Michael the Archangel and covering a hole in the side where prior to people saw things coming in and out of that hole. I have no idea what that is. If it is true, it's obviously some type of demonic stronghold. And it reminds me of the book of Revelation when Jesus was talking to John and telling them to write the things down that he would see and hear. When he spoke of one of the churches over there in Asia, Asia Minor at the time, he said that this particular place, and I wish I could think of the name of the region right now, but he said, this is where Satan's seat is. Satan's seat. And what could that mean other than this was a stronghold of his where apparently nobody in the area fought back or everybody there was owned by him. And so I kind of have a feeling that this whole Transylvania gig with Vladdy Impaler, all of the violence, that forest that Kevin was talking about a couple of podcasts ago where in the center nothing grows and all kinds of weirdness and horrible happenings go on in there. What else can you think? This is not a happy place, folks. This is not a place where goodness and mercy prevail. This area is turned over, and yet when you look at some pictures of uh, Transylvania, you see, you know, of course, in the photo shots, because they're trying to get tourists to come over there and spend a week, and all these beautiful little buildings with spired roofs and, you know, whatever else they got going on over there. It looks very quaint and very beautiful, very inviting. And yet, in the background, this type of stuff is going on. So I don't know what to say about that, but it's all grist for the mill on Bigfoot Terror in the Woods. So listen, if you've seen something, say something. Go to BigfootTerrorInTheWoods.com. Click the contact button. Tell me what you've seen. Leave your phone number. And uh, we'll get together and have a chat about it. And in the meantime, if you should be out traipsing about in the woods or in the fields and valleys, Maine, Tennessee, or Wyoming. You best remember one thing, my friends. Always carry more gun than you think you're going to need. Sleep tight, and thank you for joining me.